Welcome back. Uh, first question. Are you, come in reason, going to have a place at the GC session in Missouri? Um, well, we had a booth at, in 2020, and we had a very large end booth, that we, and we had budgeted a bunch to take a whole bunch of free stuff and give away. But, of course, you know, they got canceled. And our understanding is that this is a, is a truncated GC and that uh, the exhibit halls weren't going to be open, so we didn't have an opportunity uh, to, have, to be it. So we won't be there at this one. That's our understanding. Uh, next week or the week after. Yeah. Um, what do you uh, think made it possible for one-third of the angels to accept the me- Satan's message, but two-thirds didn't? Relationship. Relationship. Some had greater trust, closer connection, interpersonal confidence in Lucifer than others. And I think that was really the ultimate key. They were willing to give him greater credence and credit. There was no direct evidence to his allegations, and there was no direct evidence to his wickedness either, because he'd been perfect and sinless in all his ways until the day iniquity is found in him. So there was no history that anybody could point to to show the difference between what he was saying and what Christ was saying. And so what it weighted down to was who they ultimately trusted. And that goes back to the question, be careful who you trust. Why doesn't God talk to us? I mean, a real conversation, voice to voice. I understand about the still small voice, but it's hard to have a relation with anyone without conversation. I've been told it's because we are sinful. So, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appears with them. Did he reveal himself immediately? Why not? There's a reason. Instead, he took them through the scripture. He was conversing, but they didn't know it was Jesus conversing with them. First thing, how many times have we had something similar? But didn't the Bible say sometimes you're entertaining angels unaware? How many times can we be like the people on the road to Emmaus where God is actually talking to us and we don't recognize it? That's a big thought. I'll let you think on that one. Or an angel is talking to you and you don't recognize it. So God is talking to them on the road to Emmaus. They don't realize it's him. Why didn't he, though, say, hey, it's Jesus, I'm the risen Savior, it's me. Now, we can be confident their response would have been adoration, thankfulness, joy, fall down and worship. And anything he said, they would believe. Would they have known the scriptures and all the scriptures? No. So he took them to the scripture. And once they were persuaded on the weight of evidence of scripture, that everything that happened to Christ was exactly what needed to happen for the plan of salvation. Then he revealed himself. And I'm going to answer this question. Why doesn't God talk to us directly? This is also why Jesus said to the disciples, it's expedient for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the comforter won't come. Really? I mean, you know, like, it's like tag team. If I don't go up there and tag, he can't come. So he's up there waiting. It's like, hey, 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 tag me, tag me. No. Why won't he come? If Jesus doesn't leave, the comforter won't come. But when the comforter comes, he will lead you into all truth, it says. Why, why wouldn't the comforter come until Jesus leaves? It's expedient. It's good that I go. So if Jesus stays on earth physically after his resurrection and a question of doctrine comes up in the church, how will that question be resolved with Jesus on earth? Just ask him. The teacher said... The judge said, the referee said, we don't have to think. We don't have to understand. 
We don't have to reason. We don't have to comprehend. We don't have to study. We can just go and ask the question and get the answer from the teacher. It's like going to a math class. And every problem, you ask the teacher for the answer, and they give you the answers. You never learn how to do math. And so it's expedient for you that I go, because the Spirit comes, and the Spirit will speak in the still small voice. He will lead you into truth. You will have to study. You will have to reason. You have to come together in fellowship, mind upon mind, heart upon heart, which is part of the transforming healing process. It's expedient for your maturity, your growth, because one of the laws, the law of exertion, if you don't use it, you lose it. And he wants us to grow up in the full stature of sons and daughters of God. So it's expedient. So he doesn't talk to us because he wants our growth and maturity. He wants us to engage and study. He wants us to fellowship together. He wants us to talk to each other. He wants us to come, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet. and be white like snow. So that's why he doesn't do it. Because if he did, we would really stop the, the, the process of growth. I suspect you'll, you'll love this. It's a quote from That I May Know Him, page 218. We fasten our minds upon the misrepresentations of Satan and dishonor God by mistrusting him and by murmuring against him. When we act like culprits under the sentence of death, we bear false witness against God. What are your thoughts? Exactly. When you teach, we're under the sentence of death and the ruler in heaven will have to execute us unless we pay the payment. We are presenting Satan's view of God. We're bearing false witness against God. And this is the greatest infection to Christianity coming out of Rome with a Roman hierarchy and a Roman system of law that has infected Christianity and it is taught in every branch of Christianity. We have to, and the three angels' message is to call us back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. It's creator worship, whose laws are the laws of reality are built upon. And we worship him, we understand that sin takes us out of harmony with the laws of life and results in ruin and death unless the creator restores his law back in us. I'll write my law in your hearts and minds. That's the healing gospel message. And it's been supplanted and replaced with this penal legal lie. Yes, and so there's a lot of false, bearing false witness against the Lord done in the churches, including ours. How would you define, quote, the flesh, unquote, referenced in Galatians 5, and what do you think attitudes and behaviors of the flesh look like in the church? So the flesh is simply referring to the carnal nature, and a lot of the more mi- modern translations don't say the flesh, they'll say the, 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 the fallen nature, the car- carnal nature, and that nature is the what we're in, born with, the inherent drives of fear and selfishness. Me first. Me, 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 and more of me. That's what it means by the flesh. And it wars against the spirit, which is love for God and love for others. Uh, what would it look like uh, in the church? Uh, I'll, I'll let Paul, the apostle, answer the question when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. See, that's, this is the carnal right here. Unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But here, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. This description is not the atheist. These people have a form of God. They claim to be godly people. That's what it looks like in the church. 
And I will tell you, it looks like in the church, it's the same. The data shows child abuse rates in Christian homes are no different than non-Christian homes. Domestic violence in Christian homes, the rates are no different than non-Christian, uh, non-Christian homes, and Christian homes no different. Pornography use, no different in Christian homes than non-Christian homes. Uh, uh, addictions, no different in Christian homes than non-Christian homes. Why? Because the carnal nature dominates in Christianity. Why? Because there's a false gospel that tells you your problem is a legal one, that you need to simply claim the blood of the perfect sacrifice for your legal account in heaven so the magistrate of heaven can declare you to be righteous while you remain unrighteous. Therefore, you have a form of godliness with no power. Rather than the true gospel that he knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, that we get new hearts and right spirits, we're recreated in the inner man, and we're transformed to live new lives. The old is gone, the new has come. We don't teach a transformational, regenerational gospel message that heals the heart. We teach a penal legal fraud that keeps people trapped in these violence and addiction cycles. And that's because we teach it through the imperial law lie. I visited a church a couple of weeks ago and was asked for uh, asking for prayer as I have precancerous cells in my throat. The lady there told me to take chlorine dioxide. Uh, have you ever heard of this and what is your opinion? She thinks it's a cure-all for about all illnesses. Uh, no, I have not heard of it, so I have, I have no opinion. I see lots of children with Christian parents who seem sweet, but their children grow up to be wild. And the Bible says if you train up a child on the way they should go when they're old, they won't depart from it. So why do lots of children who grow up in the church turn wild? And how can I train my children to love Jesus and want his character? First off, the, the, the Bible text that's quoted here, if you take it to be an actual certainty of reality, that if you do a good job, you're guaranteed a good outcome when they turn old, then our Heavenly Father really, really messed up with Lucifer. If he had just fathered him a little better, he wouldn't have gone off into wild living and a third of the angels with him. And if he could have just been a little better father to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve wouldn't have gone off into wild living if he could have just done a little better job. This text does not mean what people think it means. Uh, There's various ways to interpret it. My personal one, the way I think it's most, and if you look at the Hebrew, it's open to wide interpretation. Uh, it's, it's not a, this is the, what they quote is, is the common one, but I think the more accurate one is, raise a child according to his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let the child dictate the terms of the rearing. No discipline, no instruction, no uh, oversight, no accountability. Let them be completely self-indulgent, do whatever they want, whenever they want. And when they're old, they will be a self-centered egotistical, exploitive human being, they won't turn away from it. This is what I think it actually means. And it's not a promise that if you do a good job that you'll get a good outcome. It's a promise if you don't do no job, there's really little chance if you're not planting in the good seed, you can't get good fruit. And so that's what I think it's talking about. Um, but why do so many children uh, raised in the church? Because they are taught a false gospel with no power. And it makes no sense, and they reject it. They're taught a penal legal system that makes no sense. Let me give you, and you've heard this example before, so I'll answer the personal line. The example of toothbrushing or teeth brushing. When children are small, we have rules for them because they can't comprehend the, the design law of the second law of thermodynamics. If you don't put energy into a system, that system decays. They can't comprehend that, so mommy and daddy create a rule. If you don't brush your teeth, you'll get punished, which is a righteous thing for small children for us to do. 
But we understand that everybody, as they grow up, they finally grow up at some point and recognize, well, the reason the rule was there was because my teeth will decay and my mommy loved me and wanted to protect my teeth. And, and when they go off to college and they have a roommate from, say, South America or some other part of the world, and they go, hey, what are you doing? As they see him brush your teeth, your child goes, well, my mother has a rule. If your college student said that, you wouldn't go, well done, well done. You go, what's wrong? There's something wrong there. Right? Something wrong. Why are you, why are you, why are you brushing your teeth? I have a rule. Well, you did. You had a rule. Aren't I supposed to keep the rules? No, you're supposed to understand why the rule's given. And you're supposed to grow up and you're supposed to have the principles put in your heart so it becomes part of who you are. You brush them because you want to keep teeth healthy. Law written on the heart. But if the children don't grow up, imagine in your home, no reasons were ever given other than rules, rules that will be enforced. And they grow up and they finally move out at age 18 or 20 and they have no comprehension in their mind whatever that the problem with, with not brushing your teeth is your teeth get. The only thing they think about is if I don't brush my teeth, I'll get punished by mom or dad. Now when they move out, what are they likely to do? They're going to stop brushing their teeth. And this is the problem in Christianity. We teach rules. Why do you keep the Sabbath? Well, God is a law. And if you don't keep the law, he'll punish. You get, you get a demerit in heaven. And you'll get punished. And this is what we teach. If you want your kids to stay loyal, you have to teach them the truth of God's character of love and how the laws of God are always design laws on how reality is built. And if you want to break them, you have the freedom to do it, but you can't break them and be healthy and happy. You will suffer. You can't have health while violating the laws of health. You can't do it. And you can't have mental and spiritual health while violating the moral laws of God. They always damage the person who does it. So I have adolescents, so when I was doing talks to young people about human sexuality, and they would ask the question, well, if God will forgive me for having premarital sex, then what's the problem with having premarital sex? If he'll forgive me for it. You see, that's rules. You break a rule, you get in legal trouble, and if I get my legal trouble taken care of, if, if I have diplomatic immunity and I get caught speeding and they can't find me, what's wrong with speeding then? I can speed everywhere. And people with diplomatic immunity park anywhere and speed everywhere because they can't be held accountable. If God forgives us and Jesus paid it all, then what's the point in living righteously? All my sins are already put on Jesus. He's already paid it. I get diplomatic immunity. And this is how many people think. It's corrupt, and this is why there's no power. So if you want your kids to stay, teach them reality. If you don't have, if you have, Ameri- if you have a U.S. postal address and you don't have our little children's book, email us and ask for the children's book. We'll send it out to you for free. It teaches. It's a beautiful little illustrated children's book, and it's very simple, I think 28, 30 pages or something, but in those short little pages, it teaches these principles in ways even children. Our grandchildren get it. They understand the reasons why, because it's so simple to understand. To what extent can we draw similarities between the Revelation Heavenly Sanctuary, Revelation chapter 8, and Exodus and Leviticus Sanctuary? Directly and completely. Both are metaphor and symbolic. The Old Testament Sanctuary was theater, acted out, nothing was literal, and the description in Revelation is symbolic to describe those same symbolic principles, and so both are pointing to the reality, and they both represent the same thing. So you you can connect them directly. But the goal, whenever you have metaphor, metaphor has to be connected to reality because it's trying to enlighten about some object of reality. If you disconnect it from the reality, it's no longer metaphor, it's fantasy. And so the Bible metaphors 
are great if you're understanding the reality to which they're pointing. The problem is in much of Christianity, people don't understand the reality to which they're pointing. Probably the most common misunderstood metaphor, common, is the blood. Saved by the blood, cleansed by the blood, washed in the blood, power in the blood. Power, 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 lots of power in the blood. No, actually there's not. The power is in the one who shed his blood. That's where the power is, not in the blood. Red corpuscles have no power. But the blood is misunderstood. It's a metaphor. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. It's a metaphor. Life is in the blood. The blood is a metaphor for the righteous life of Christ that we receive through faith. After we've partaken of the bread, which is also the flesh, which is the word, the word was made flesh, we ingest the word, the word, with the, which is the truth of God, Revealing Christ becomes building blocks to our minds and concepts that destroy the lies and win us to trust. And we open the heart and we receive the blood, which is the life. We have a new heart. It's a metaphor pointing to a reality of transformation. But so many churches I've gone to, they just present the metaphor and they never explain it. And you get so many amens. Boy, you talk about the blood, you'll get lots of amens. What's it mean? I've asked this. What's it mean? And you'll see confused looks and then they'll get angry. I've noticed that people in church with useful people in church with useful gifts of the spirit are often graced with jobs as an answer to their prayers in finding someone who can do the job for them. People with gifts in the church are graced with their answer to their prayers in finding someone else to do the job for them. As I seem often to be the one that is the answer to their prayers. <laughs> Especially since I don't charge any money for my services. <laughs> How do I handle this without hurting people's faith and at the same time protect myself from invasion? Um, we answered this in class today. Does anybody know where we answered this in class today? We answered it in class, specifically in class. The, the, the answer to this question was, answer, it was, a, was answered in one of those stories we went through. I'll tell you the story. Tell me if you can see the answer. The story was the old and the young prophet. We answered specifically this problem. The story here is somebody has been gifted a gift. They are, they are graced. They have an answer to prayer in finding someone to help. And they go now to the person who's emailing me and say, I've been praying and the Lord has impressed me that you are to help me with this. And the right answer for the emailer? Well, the Lord is quite capable of impressing me that I'm to help you. And when he does, I'll be glad to help you. But until then, I'm not helping you. That's the same thing as the old and young prophet. Well, the Lord has communicated to me that I'm not to go home uh, the same way. And I'm not to eat, drink, uh, eat and drink here. Uh, I'm, if you've got that message, it's great. If the Lord wants me to do it, he'll have to tell me. It's a very simple boundary. Thank you for sharing uh, your prayers and your thoughts and what the Lord would have me do. And when the Lord is ready for me to do it, he'll let me know. Until then, I will keep you in my prayers. <laughs> and that's it. It's very straightforward. You affirm that they have had the experience. You're not challenging them. But you put the responsibility. You're responsible before God for what you do. And if you haven't been told by the Lord in some way, and the Lord can communicate to us in lots of ways, then you put it back on them and say, and this happens. I remember stories of, of people in church going to somebody and saying, the Lord impressed me. You're to be my spouse. 
And the answer for that, and that person was wise enough to say, and when the Lord impresses me of that, I'll let you know. <laughs> That's how that works. All righty, let's close with prayer. Oh, a question in the back? Go ahead. There's a difference between competent and being called. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so people can be called that are not competent, but will the Lord call people who are not competent? Uh, there you go. Uh, Ellen, Ellen White wrote, all the Lord's biddings are enabling. So if the Lord calls you, he'll give you the competence. So if we have somebody called and we discover by objective observation that they're incompetent, maybe the call wasn't from the Lord. Is that what you're suggesting? No, I'm just oh, you're not. Okay. Oh, don't let me put words in your mouth. Don't let me bear false witness against you now. <laughs> You know, somebody's telling you should be doing this job. I may be capable of doing that job, but I may not be called to do that job. Okay, that's also different. Okay, so somebody can call on you because you are competent, but you're not called for it. Okay, that's the other side of that coin, which is exactly true. Yeah, we, we have competencies in many areas that we aren't called to go serve uh, in various other people's fields. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, and we thank you for your truth, and we thank you for the wisdom that you've given us, and we ask that your spirit will enlighten each of our hearts and minds that we can faithfully fulfill the duties you have given us to do as the individual representatives for your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen.